0: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. When Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, applied the phrase Fortress Europe, In his successful election campaign earlier this year, it was clear what he meant. He was talking about protecting Christian Europe from Muslim immigrants. He was raising the specter, not so subtly, of the clash of civilizations, Islam versus Christianity, East versus West. Perhaps Orban was still carrying the legacy of the 16th and 17th centuries when much of what is Hungary today was governed as part of the Muslim Ottoman Empire. A period that many historians believe to be mutually beneficial for East and West. The number of illegal migrants seeking to enter Europe today bears no comparison to six years ago, when the Syrian civil war was at its height, and Angela Merkel famously insisted, "Wir schaffen das, we can do it." Yet is Europe applying a fortress strategy based on deterrence today? Boris Johnson's Rwanda policy seems to suggest it is. However, the more compassionate response to Ukrainian refugees is in stark contrast. What's going on? Here's the sociologist Grace Davey speaking on the Naked Reflection show, Believing and Belonging. All over Europe, I'm beginning to see new configurations that worry me considerably. It comes in different forms in different places, but the common theme is the dominant religion, which is Christian in Europe. It's laying itself open to be used negatively, in other words, as a bulwark against mostly Islam. For a little while now, we've seen that tendency, say, in Hungary or Poland. I mean, a a lot is changing right now, almost as we speak. Fortress Europe is our theme in this week's Naked Reflections. Helping me to discuss what it means today and in yesteryear is anthropologist and scholar of Islam, Akbar Ahmed, Professor of Islamic Studies at the American University in Washington, D.C., and author of many books on Islam, including Journey into Europe Islam, Immigration and Identity. Akbar is also a diplomat and many years ago was Pakistani High Commissioner in London and moved to D.C. in 2001. He's joined by Saharish Abra, who undertook postgraduate studies on Islam in contemporary Britain at the Centre for the Study of Islam at Cardiff University. Saharesh is social media manager here at the Wolf Institute which she combines with research into interfaith issues especially associated with mental health. Saharesh, Grace's analysis pretty pessimistic. Do you share it?
1: If we're looking at it from kind of a broader society level, I do share it, and I can only speak to my experience as a Muslim woman in Britain, but it seems that this reinforcement of Europe as Christian um, really does give some legitimacy to discrimination against Muslims that are in Britain, and it kind of reinforces the idea that Muslims are them rather than part of society. Um, And we've seen this in the rise of Islamophobia and the rhetoric of far-right groups like Britain first claiming that they're returning Britain to its Christian origins. Uh, but I also think that this is not a majority opinion And um, when we're talking about general society in, in Britain.
0: So Akbar, that's a pretty uh, depressing picture, isn't it, in terms of growing discrimination, uh, Islamophobia um, and prejudice. Now you've researched, I know you're based there in, uh, in DC, but you've been researching for decades Islam in Europe. Is, is that your sense of it too?
2: Now, my sense is that Orban has put his finger on a certain moment in European history where he exploits or exacerbates the tension against incoming Muslim immigrants. And he's captured that very well with this phrase, Fortress Europe. It evokes the Ottomans, the Turks, who, by the way, are not particularly popular in East Europe even today. But he is blanking out, he's erasing European history in this uh, comment of his, because I really see it, again, on the basis of my research, uh, the Muslim presence in Europe in three distinct phases. There's the first phase when the Muslims come in via via Andalusia in southern Spain, and they are mainly Arabs and Berbers and North Africans, and they provide Spain and Europe with one of its most brilliant phases of history. There is what is called convivencia, that is, Coexistence, Jews, Muslims, Christians living together for long periods, their problems, but for long periods they live together and create together. So there's art and culture and architecture and astronomy. It's incredible the wealth of information and knowledge coming out of that period. Then we have the second phase when we do have conflict, we have violence, we have tragedies. You have the um, Inquisition, the Jewish and Muslim expulsion from, uh, from the Iberian Peninsula. And that leads on to colonization when European countries come and colonize many African and Asian countries. Second phase. The third phase is what you're seeing, the current phase, which is the immigrants. Now, again, largely because of European intervention in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, Uh, these um, refugees arriving from the Muslim world in, in very terrible conditions of poverty and misery. And when they arrive in Europe, they, of course, face face and confront Orban and people like him. So Orban would be helped a great deal in learning about past European history because he describes Europe as Fortress Europe, which it has become. But he needs to remember that uh, another European, a great European in many ways, uh, Winston Churchill described Europe as a a turbulent but mighty continent. And we need to see it in both these uh, features, turbulence and its mightiness. And if Europe is aware of its past and its mightiness and its capacity to help the world into a better future, I think that Orbán's uh, point of view would have greater perspective.
0: The problem is, of course, that people are very selective about how they read the past, aren't they, Akbar? So you can choose moments like the convivencia, the period of coexistence and the harmony in medieval Spain, or you can choose the moments of conflict. And depending on where you sit, you can pick one or the other, and Orban certainly has picked his. And I just wonder what we can do about that, Harish. Is a history of Islam in Europe, or all minorities for that matter in Europe, a story of conflict and clash, but also a story of enculturation and contribution, And what can one do to shift the narrative? You're working in social media. There
1: are both sides. There is the time of la where, you know, everyone lived together and created together coexisted. that is a time in history. And I think a lot of the times this is ignored, you know, to kind of reiterate the agenda that Muslims are the other. Um, But also othering of communities is not something new as well. You know, we've seen it in Jewish communities, we've seen it in Muslim communities, we've seen it in migrant communities, refugees, ethnic minorities as well. And I do think social media and the internet and kind of the, the technology we have now, it can play a part in both, aspects it can either be a vehicle for hate speech and difference or it can be a tool for interfaith as we use it in the institute or you know for seeing the similarities we have you know you can connect with people across the world we can connect with people in spain we have many uh, similarities there and many islamic influences there as well from from that time
0: And there in the US, Akbar, you have it par excellence, don't you? The polarisation and division across all aspects of politics and ideologies. um, And you have social media playing a key role.
2: Very important, uh, Ed, because uh, politics today in the US is more divided than ever before. I'm quoting all the scholars and commentators uh, who are actually making this point. It's split down the sentence, Republicans versus Democrats. So if one says the world is round, the other will say it's flat irrespective of the fact. So it really is has reached that point. And, of course, people are now speculating that Trump, with everything he did in the past, may well be back. So we are faced with that. Now, Orban in Europe, because we are talking about Europe, it presents a slightly different picture. And I really think a lot depends on scholars like you, because it's a question, it's a pedagogical answer to the problems, political problems. It's how you communicate to people like or people like um, uh, Gate Wilders and Holland, or um, the right-wing leaders in France, and indeed in, in the UK, that they really need to understand their own history. We found it that in Spain, now remember this is Spain, we found that Spanish, these are Spanish non-Muslims telling us that we are not taught Spanish history before 1492. So, Spanish history begins after 1492, which means the whole Jewish, Muslim, Christian experience is just blotted out. Now, we found the periods of conflict, as I say, but there were incredible periods of rich interaction. Just the life of Rabbi Maimonides, who is expelled from Cordoba for all kinds of reasons, he lands up in in Cairo as the medical advisor to Sultan Saladin, one of the greatest Muslim rulers in history. And his book, for example, The Guide for the Perplexed, is a classic. And to me, that's the kind of work you need for people to be aware of, to understand that that is Europe in the phase of convivencia, which can help Europe today in this fortress, Europe mode or mentality. And if people like Orbán are confronted with their own past, because Maimonides is his own past from Europe, I think that it will make a lot of difference
0: in the classroom then Saharish, and some of your work of course is in the communities including with young people do you think that's where we've got to prioritize our engagement, if you like and trying to extend the learning uh, beyond either one or the other and try and, and try and combine the two
1: yes and i think it's a it's a big kind of area of research right now of decolonizing the curriculum and kind of teaching a more holistic European history rather than focusing on British history in a sense of, you know, the First World War and Second World War and that's kind of it. But learning about um, our interactions with other communities and other faiths at different points in history and that's going to be a really big step in kind of fostering relations between faith communities and minority communities in, in Britain. Because how can you expect people to understand each other if we don't know about our shared history?
0: I think that's right. And I know when I was studying at school and at university, if I learned about the Ottomans, it was at the end. It was the decline of the Ottomans rather than the richness of of Ottoman civilization. So I completely agree there needs to be a shift. I, I wonder whether the term fortress Europe but can be an inclusive term rather than simply an exclusive term, that we're actually all part of Fortress Europe, aren't we?
2: It's a difficult one because as an anthropologist who studied Europe, we have to, Muslim immigrants have to understand that there is a local history, that there are local cultures. There's the strength of local culture. So Muslims can't come to Europe and say, all right, we, we impose our way of thinking and you must acknowledge us because they in turn have to acknowledge that they are now in a different country, different culture, and there needs to be an adjustability. And for this, I will quote uh, the chief rabbi from uh, Denmark, Melchior, the legendary chief rabbi. And I was interviewing him for the project, and he said something that really struck me. He was describing the history of the Jewish community in Denmark. And he said, when we first came, there were very few Jewish people in Denmark centuries ago. And he said, we immediately set up a school. So I said, you set up a school to teach Judaism to your own uh, community. He said, no, we set it up to teach the Jewish community about Denmark and its culture and its language and its its history. And that struck me because we don't, Muslims don't do that. We set up schools for ourselves. Now, if you don't acknowledge that Europe has its own history, its own culture and its sensitivities. And I don't have to tell you uh, as a scholar that you go back to Herder and the great German scholars who are discovering German identity in the late 18th and 19th centuries. And they're building, not necessarily in a vitriolic or nasty way, but simply saying, in fact, Herder said, every community has its own history and its own folk history. So the word folk becomes dangerous later on under Hitler. But initially, it simply meant race, people, your people, which means your culture, your language, your, your history, your tradition. And you take pride in that. And Herder talked about a garden, a happy garden a pleasant garden of different ethnicities this is his concept so muslims need to understand we are now in england for example british muslims in england this is their culture let's let us enjoy it without being colonized without being uh, dominated or being uh, sidelined and they are i think this next generation is becoming increasingly part of it
0: saharish so that point about the next generation i wonder if you could comment on that because it does seem to me that it's one thing for the generation who arrive It's quite another when their children and grandchildren are fully part of the community, fully British, as it were. Is there a sense of optimism that your generation are more at ease with your British and Muslim identities?
1: It's a big problem in, in younger generations of Muslims, especially around kind of national and ethnic identity. And I think because of kind of not being able to relate completely with British identity because of things like Islamophobia and discrimination and that rejection that they've faced in in this society, but also not being able to relate to their ethnic homelands because they're not actually from there. They've been there maybe once or twice in their life, um, but that doesn't have any relevance to them. You know, a lot of people will identify as Muslim first, then their ethnicity But it's always a case of I'm a British Muslim or I'm a Welsh Muslim or Scottish or Irish Muslim. And that's really important because, you know, we feel very much that this is our home and this is where we grew up. This is where we were educated. So it is optimistic in that sense. But also you can see a lot of barriers based on the fact that if you, for example, wear a hijab, you are visibly Muslim and that can present barriers to things like education and employment. So that is also something to take into consideration and kind of can dampen the optimism a little bit as well.
0: Yes, I think whenever one feels under pressure, it makes you question who you are, doesn't it? This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Akbar Ahmed and Saharish Abra, and we're discussing Fortress Europe. As you'll know by now, we often turn to our friends at the Naked Scientists for some clues about human nature and other matters in the course of our podcasts. Here's Deborah Hyde, speaking on the show Supernatural Science, discussing the idea of scapegoating.
1: It's very noticeable in history that when there are random environmental factors when people when there are wars uh, when there are epidemics when there is um, mad inflation or something like that that people get very panicky and they're likely to scapegoat other people it seems to be tremendously satisfying for groups of people to look to blame one person and then to perform a ritual to get rid of that person um, or to get rid of that effect that's happening now it doesn't actually work but it makes people feel better temporarily and you can see that with witch hunts and things like
0: that so Harris, you touched on before the clip, the tensions, if you like, in identity But also alluded to this, but we haven't used the term scapegoating yet. But this is something that's quite familiar to all minority groups, whether it's religious, ethnic, national. Is what we're talking about in terms of Islamophobia simply scapegoating?
1: I think it's a combination of scapegoating and also... A fear of of the unknown as i said before if we don't have an understanding of each other and our shared history and kind of there's a lot of ignorance around what islam is and what muslims do and believe that's very scary for someone who doesn't understand that and for example seeing somebody walking down the street and in the car it can take you back a little bit um so there is that side but also it is a scapegoating
0: that's right the othering and the scapegoating. To an extent, Akbar, as an anthropologist, isn't this part of the flawed human condition anyway?
2: Exactly, Ed. Uh, I do see it in a slightly more philosophic way, because the attacks on a minority, for example, a woman wearing a hijab or mosque or a synagogue or a Jewish person who's identified through dress as Jewish, I think really it's one of the most disgraceful and mean and nasty and cruel actions that's possible, because you have a majority picking on a minority and doing it in a very blatant and brazen way. But put it in a context. You see, go back to the Crusades a thousand years ago, when every group of Crusaders marching through Europe, they would stop in German towns, for example, and they'd attack the Jewish community, who had nothing to do with the Crusade. They're living in Germany as Germans, and yet they'd be victims of this, I would say, many genocides that would take place. So the Europeans then are picking on, the Jewish community has that you're responsible for all the ills of the world, whether it's the plague or whether it's the economic condition or whatever. So Muslims today in many senses have become also a, a scapegoat, a metaphor, an easy target. I think that has to, the majority community has to be confronted and has to be aware that that is creating more problems, not just for the minority, but also for the majority, because ultimately. It is the majority that has to pay the bill. So if it's Fortress Europe, and if Fortress Europe is weakened from inside Europe, inside the fort, then everyone is affected. Everyone is going to suffer and pay the price. So I really think the leaders of Europe who use phrases like this uh, have to be conscious of the costs of using this phrase, of alienating their own population, of highlighting the persecution that the minority feel and of the need for them to be educated about their own history, their own European history. They keep talking about the siege of Vienna. Now, you know, Ed, that in the siege of Vienna, the majority of the Ottoman troops, soldiers, were Christian. They were fighting against fellow Christians. You know that the siege was broken by the Polish cavalry, the fierce charge of the Polish cavalry, which was led by the Tatars, again, Muslim communities living in in Poland, so the notion of Muslims and Christians did not really exist. It was one empire fighting another empire. The Ottomans were constantly in confrontation with the Safavidu or a Shia empire. So again, these are lessons that I think Ulban would benefit from learning.
0: Yes, you raise a lot of issues there, Akbar. And, and one of them is the, the nuance, the complexity of these stories. We're very good, aren't we, at trying to simplify everything. And of course, when we simplify, we normally get it wrong. And the challenge in social media, Saharish, is, of course, simplification. In the digital age, when everything's reduced to, what is it, 284 characters, we're in that soundbite culture. And this is something that is, is difficult, particularly for an older generation to manage and threatening as well to communities because it's a violent space. But from the Muslim perspective, and you've looked into this, I know, is the digital age, the digital culture, an opportunity or a threat?
1: I think it can be both. I mean, as you said, you know, we've seen on Twitter, the character limit, how much of yourself can you explain or can you share with the world with that many characters? You can't share very much. Um, and we've seen in the past things get mis- misinterpreted because somebody didn't read the next tweets which actually explains everything in a bit more detail and you know a big argument happens online and then the trolls come social media has been used for many good things for you know finding a community even for islamic authority and knowledge but it is also a case of you know you have that anonymity online you can change your username you can change your picture and people can say what they
0: want so it is also dangerous Yes, somebody put it to me. You grow muscles behind the keyboard.
2: The danger that of the trolls can then really in a very nasty way attack, particularly attack who they think should be targets and pull them down. Uh, the attacks on women, for example, in um, in India, you had the example of these trolls actually projecting images of Muslim women and then selling them in an auction it was absolutely disgraceful. But what does the woman do if suddenly she sees her, Image on on the screen and the people are bidding for her like a slave market is disgraceful. So we need to understand that these new developments that are happening with such such frightening speed have a positive side, but also a negative side.
0: There are moments in Islamic history, if you like, Akbar, where there's been a revolution almost in thinking, a transformation due to some technological development. And Muslim society has managed to navigate that, hasn't it? I mean, what lessons are there that you can identify and apply to the modern transformation? I realise the speed of communication is something else, but nevertheless, the creation of printing, the the creation of woodcuts, uh, the movement of peoples. And there have been times in human history and in Islamic history where we've had to deal
2: with that. Ed, the greatest example I can give you uh, is Rumi one of the greatest mystics uh, well-known in Europe, and Ibn Arbi, equally great in terms of his mystic and his spiritual development, and very well-known, uh, maybe as well as, as Rumi. These are the two giants. Now, both of them write mystic verses of love, of compassion, and they embrace, they embrace the Jewish faith, Christians, atheists, whoever, because their message is one of love. And when are they writing? And this is the point I want to make. They're writing when the Mongols hit Baghdad and destroyed. it. They destroyed the irrigation systems, the libraries, the population. They decimate it. It really is the end, the full stop of the first great Arab dynasty. And in the middle of all this, you have the crusaders attacking from the west. And right at the center of this, in the center, in the eye of the storm, you have Ibn Arabi and Rumi talking about love and compassion. And I'm very inspired because I say to a Muslim or a Jewish person or any individual who's feeling that the world is out of control, there's so much violence and chaos, that here are these two individuals who in the midst of this violence and the storm around them were still capable of falling back inside themselves and finding strength in faith and in piety and in goodness and reaching out to the world and embracing the world. I think that's a great example for the young. I know it's not easy because the young are impatient, the young want quick answers, and they don't they don't have so much patience for this. But this is a live example of what happened in history and what can happen again. It's not a theoretical example, it's a live example.
0: Well, I have to confess, Akbar, I'm not so young, but I'm still very impatient. And I wonder whether the issue of narrative, Saharish is so important today. Because when you hear... Or you see images, you hear a story about somebody, and it touches you, doesn't it? And I suppose that's the power that one has, that an individual, the work that you do, the work of the Institute, the work of uh, Professor Ahmed, um, can actually touch people. But it's through the narrative, the individual connection, isn't it?
1: I think, actually, social media is a really good tool to do that. I mean, we've seen in the israeli palestinian conflict, a lot of Muslims rallying and even protesting on behalf of Palestine. And that's come about because of, you know, it being reported on social media and kind of hearing the stories of of people there on the ground and what they're experiencing. And that is a big driving force for people to go outside and make connections. But not only that, it's also kind of encouraged discussions between Muslims and Jewish communities. And, you know, a lot of local kind of organizations have come together and thought, This is something that our youth and the youth in our communities is actually getting behind, and that's a big problem in... Muslim communities in Britain right now is that you know we always say the mosques are empty how do we get young people into the mosques well you have to talk about things that interest them and that are relevant to them you know talking about mosque politics and like committees and things like that is not relevant really to young Muslims you know in university in college in high school that are just trying to kind of navigate being in British society so using these kind of tools make these conversations relevant to young people is, is really really important.
2: And then uh, the Muslim community must reach out, they must make friends, they must build networks. Another suggestion of the Rabbi Bent Milchow, I think is fantastic for the community. He said that when one Jewish person does something wrong, then their critics will say, oh, all the Jews are like this. And he said Muslims must understand that one one Muslim does something wrong, some act of terrorism. People are going to say all Muslims are like this. So instead of being sensitive and reacting in anger, they must reach out and explain who they are and that they are not like this. And therefore, they're able to move ahead. So these are little lessons, I think, that we need to learn, the Muslim community, the leaders need to lead us into learning these lessons so that it becomes easier for the younger generation to not only live as Europeans the British Muslims, um, French Muslims and so on, but then contribute and then fight for their rights in a proper legal way within the framework that these countries provide. I think they... European countries have systems, they have parliaments, they have educational systems, they have media, which would invite Muslims to voice their uh, opinions and their grievances and so on and move this discussion forward. But if Muslims continue to be in the sidelines and are cut off from the mainstream, they're not going to be able to change anything. And certainly not through uh, anger or through lashing out, as we saw in the last uh, two decades.
0: I think Akbar... Naked Reflections listeners would be interested in one of your initiatives many years ago where you dealt with a very tricky issue uh, and worked incredibly hard with Judea Pearl, didn't you? Just tell us a little bit about that.
2: That was a very difficult initiative because Judea Pearl is a great professor in California, very respected, very well known. And he had one son and a very brilliant young journalist. And he was in the Muslim world promoting dialogue between Islam and the West, which he thought needed to be strengthened. And he was picked up in Karachi and in a most brutal and uh, I can't even think about it or mention it in a very savage way. He was he was killed. He was beheaded. He was his life was snuffed out. It was weeks later that Judea Pearl approached me and came to Washington to meet me and said, I'd like to try to understand what happened to my son. And someone mentioned your name. And from that came the idea of a dialogue, a public dialogue, where the two of us would travel in the United States, in Canada. We came to Britain and we would promote Jewish Muslim understanding. And very often we'd have a moderator who'd be a non, who'd be Christian or some person of a different faith. And those dialogues became very, very popular. At first, they were a bit hesitant in taking off. But we had huge audiences, huge media interests. It would be on television. There'd be articles written about us. And in time, people saw us. And they were moved by the fact that they had two men, two grandfathers, who were really talking. They didn't agree. He and I didn't agree on many, many issues on the Iraq war, for example. I still tease him about that. But at the same time, we were able to talk and with sympathy. And Muslims would very often come and say, oh, look, you're sympathizing with one Jewish boy who died but you don't sympathize with, uh, with so many other Muslims who have been killed. I said, on the contrary, we must feel for Judea Pearl and his son exactly as other fathers who lose their sons would be feeling. And we need to sympathize with each one of them because this is a human emotion. We are not sympathizing whether they're Jewish or Muslim or Christian. We are sympathizing because a father lost a son.
0: That seems an appropriate place to end this week's Naked Reflections. Thanks to my guests, Akbar Ahmed and Saharish Abra, and thanks to you two for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you might want to browse our archive of podcasts, which includes that edition about believing and belonging that I mentioned at the top of the show. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at the Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more guests.